Hollywood Scientific Method, where we unpack the research and lives of the young scientists doing amazing things all around us. Libby Natola is a PhD candidate in the UBC's zoology department, studying avian speciation with Dr. Jaron Irwin. She was raised in the U.S. state of New Hampshire, graduated with a BSc in wildlife ecology from the University of New Hampshire, and got her master's in biology at the University of Lethbridge. Her research in the Irwin lab uses sapsuckers, which is a group of woodpeckers, as a model system to improve our understanding of how new species arise. By studying the genomics, behavior, and ecology of sapsuckers, Libby aims to learn what evolutionary forces drive sapsuckers apart. Welcome, Libby. We're super excited to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And for for our (laughs) listeners, this is our first in-person interview, and I'm so stoked. I think it's going to be so nice, and it's not just like another person on a screen, which was also really nice and a great way to connect with people who we couldn't connect with otherwise, but like, Mm -hmm. this is nice. It feels really legit. Yeah. Um, We're we're in a studio. It's literally called UBC Studios. Right? And we've got headphones on and everything. (laughs) Microphones. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The man asked me to be quiet when we walked through here because someone else was recording. Oh, wow. This this is a a legit setup. Yeah. 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 It's it's funny because we were talking to people who, in kind of a similar situation, have started different podcasts and that kind of thing. Um, And they tell us that at the beginning, often they'll start with like their microphone sitting in their closet with all their clothes around them because they want to like really muffle all the sound around. Like a towel on their head. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was talking to someone. I met this couple recently. Really, really cool. Um, and they actually uh, kind of near the beginning of the pandemic sold everything and got up and traveled actually mm-hmm. kind of throughout. And they, they did a bunch of different traveling. Um, and to fund this kind of part with they sort of did a YouTube, t- a YouTube channel. And so they've had this kind of same issue with audio and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she was telling me stories about being in some random hostel rooms in like a random country, like <laughs> underneath the blankets, trying to get this one audio clip because it sounded horrible otherwise. Can you imagine being in that hostel dorm and walking in on someone in a bunk bed, like talking under their sheets? <laughs> yeah, yeah, with like a giant microphone, I'm sure. Like, like what is this? Uh, to be a fly on that wall. Yeah, yeah. So Libby, tell me, how did you get into birds? How did How did this happen for you? How did I get into birds? So I kind of just fell into birds. I was getting my degree in wildlife ecology, and I knew that I wanted to go into research. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but I knew that the best way to do that was to talk to a professor, join a lab, volunteer. So um, I had this professor I really liked. Her name was Dr. Adrian Kovach at UNH, and um, there was a graduate student in her lab, Dr. Jen Walsh, who was studying marsh um, marsh sparrows. And so that was kind of, I just volunteered with her, and then that was on my resume. Um, and then so the next job I got was birds, and then the next job I got was birds, and then all I was qualified to do was birds. <laughs> but it's actually a lot of fun. Um, having done a little bit of, you know, herp and mammal work, I would never go back. Um, I think I think you might need to define what herp is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, herps is like herpetology. So yeah. um, reptiles and amphibians. Okay. okay. Um, so with a lot of um, mammals and reptiles and amphibians, it's the work is less hands-on. And if it is hands-on, um, often you're dealing with like pit traps and stuff. So dead animals. Okay. Um, whereas with birds or, or you're, you know, collecting hair from hair traps or you're using spotting scopes, looking at, an animal, you know, super far away or you're using camera traps. But with birds, um, 
we, we really have to catch them to do most of the work we want. So, uh, which is probably bad biology for me to say that that's why I like it the most because, you know, we do want to be non-invasive if we can, but there's no hair traps for birds, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's no scat sampling for birds. So any DNA work we want to do, we have to catch them. Um, I think the most immediate obvious question is how do you catch a bird? Oh my gosh. Um, there's actually a lot of different ways to catch birds. And it kind of d- depends on the taxon or, you know, the kind of bird that you're studying. Um, for, um, in general, when people talk about like passerines, which are the songbirds, those are probably most of the birds people are thinking about, you know, sparrows and chickadees and um, crows and blue jays, things like that. So we catch them using what's called mist nets. And so if you can imagine like a badminton net, you know, a net strung between two vertical poles. Okay. Um, but it's the net is this really fine mesh. And so the birds can't see it. And so they're flying. You usually put it, you know, between, you know, a corridor of trees. So they're like hopping through a bush, going to the next bush, and they can't see your net and they fly into it. And then they fall into it. It's like got sort of like a baggy pocket. Okay. And then they try to flap and get themselves out and they get stuck. And then I run in and I, you know, take them out. Um, So that's more the, the most common way to catch a bird, but there's also. Some really cool, like, with eagle netting, you use bait, and you have this, like, they call it a bow net, and it's, like, sort of like if you had a hula hoop and you cut it in half so that you had, like, two arcs, okay. and then you spring load the arcs on top of each other, and you have a net around the outside. Okay, so I'm kind of picturing it like a bear trap without any spikes, and then it spring loads closed with the net around it. Is that fair? Um, yeah, but instead of... Yeah, it's like a closed bear trap. Oh, okay, okay. So I think of it as like a quesadilla. Yeah. And then the quesadilla springs open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've already got the eagle on the other side of the quesadilla. Oh, I see. So it goes like kind of underneath where that is. And so, yeah. So, yeah, so the, the eagle lands on the flat side of the quesadilla. The quesadilla springs open and the net or, you know, the cheese and the tortilla <laughs> on top of the eagle. And then the, the eagle is stuck. Um, there's a bunch of ways wow to yeah. catch an eagle yeah yeah have you ever done kind of bigger bird stuff um i have helped with bigger bird stuff so okay. i have a friend shout out hannah beale mm-hmm. <laughs> uh who did a lot of really cool raptor banding and um raven banding and she took me out to go eagle catching with her and we caught um i think a couple golden eagles and some red-tailed hawks and cooper's hawks and stuff it was really cool very cool. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what are the size of sap suckers, the birds you work on now? So sap suckers are, I would say maybe if like, like about the size of a robin. Okay. Um, okay. Sort of different proportions from a robin, but um, I'd say similar. Sorry, these glasses don't. No, that's okay. Fit <laughs> under there very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sap suckers are about the size of a robin, sort of head to tail mm-hmm. length, if you think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they weigh like 50 grams. Okay. Around there. Pretty tiny. Yeah. Yeah. If that helps. Yeah. Birds yeah. are super light. So light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And what are they like? Do they have kind of specific behaviors or anything like that? Yeah. yeah so sapsuckers are called sapsuckers because they, they are specialized to drink tree sap. 
out of tree bark. So what they do is they um, drill these, I think they're really beautiful networks of little tiny holes in the bark of trees. And then the tree will, you know, go to repair those holes and send sap to, to, you know, to like heal itself. And the sap sucker will drink the sap out of those wells. Oh, amazing. That's so smart. I know. It's really cool, right? Um, But yeah, it's funny, you know, when you've banded a few birds, you find that they have like different personalities, like different species. So like if you catch a swallow in a net, swallows are just like, okay, I'm dead now. Like, like they just stop moving. (laughs) And then they just like, oh man, like they're not tangled at all. You come to pick them up and they're just like, they're just sitting there. They're just, they're just sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Whereas if you go to pick up a sapsucker, like, like, I feel like they define the angry bird. (laughs) Um, They're like, grabbing the net with their feet and they're thrashing around and they're screaming at you. Um, and then you take them out and they're, they, they literally peck me bloody and they scratch me bloody with their toes. So, um, it's a very, I don't want to use the word feisty because I feel like feisty is a condescending word, but they're feisty birds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're not willing to go down without a fight. Yeah. Um, so, so with this, so you'll catch these birds and then you have to take blood from them, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What is it like to take blood from a feisty bird? <laughs> um, it's hard. So they have this, um, in my lab, we take it, we take the blood sample from the brachial vein, um, which is sort of, I think it's, a, it's about the same spot as, you know, if you go for a blood drive where they would take it from you. Um, and so it's this one sort of in the crook of your elbow on a sap sucker, it's like a piece of thread. It's so small and we have these tiny needles. And so you get the bird in your hand and then take a cotton ball with some rubbing alcohol, clean it, you know, get the feathers down so you can see it really well. And then you just take a needle and poke them sort of like, you know, they do when they test your blood iron. And then you just get one like little perfect bead of blood. And we have these little glass tubes. Um, I'm on a Canadian podcast, so I'm going to pronounce it a capillary tube. Mm. <laughs> and it, Oh, I didn't know there was a different. In the U.S., we call it capillary. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I've always said capillary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it uses capillary action okay. um, to just suck up the blood. And mm. it's um about, uh, we take about 50 microliters so it's really small it's, it's, yeah super it's, small volume it's, yeah. it's like a, exactly like if if you were to get your blood iron tested on your finger okay okay um, yeah and, and it's a really small proportion of the bird's blood volume so it doesn't hurt them um and actually that's that's something a lot of people ask me like why don't you take a feather why don't you do something less invasive you know than taking the blood and i think that's a very you know like pe- people are being sort of anthropomorphic anthropomorphizing it because you know it wouldn't cost you very much to lose a strand of hair and give your dna that way Mm -hmm. but it actually costs birds a lot of energy to grow feathers like a lot more proportionally than it would for us and especially these really big flight feathers that we would need to take um to get enough dna to use and if you've ever like pulled a feather on a bird like they feel it 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 hurts them you know they flinch um Whereas they, they don't have a lot of nerves in their arm, actually. So um, I've, I've never really had a bird flinch when I took a blood 
um, sample from them. So wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. So I, yeah. I personally think it's the more ethical way to do it. Yeah, um, absolutely. It sounds like it. And, and, and to be able to take such a small amount and get the information you need from it. That's yeah. Phenomenal. yeah. And and the thing about birds is that they have, um, unlike humans, you know, mammals, we don't have nucleated red blood cells. Yeah. But birds do. So there's actually a ton of DNA in their blood. Um, whereas the feathers, the the DNA quality is very low. Wow, this is going to be a really niche question, but do you know evolutionary evolutionarily why that's the case? No, it's I'm so, never, that's so interesting. I've never asked that question. That's a really good question. Yeah, I'm a I'm a blood researcher, so so I always okay. think about kind of the maturation of of red blood cells in humans, Whoa. which is where yeah where you're trying to essentially get the nuclei out of it. Yeah, but I have not. Um, really thought about the evolution of blood, red blood cells in other species. That's really neither have I. You need to do an aside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll follow up on this. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So you've got this this small volume of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what do you do with it? Um, and then I put it in a buffer. Okay. Um, literally, I blow it with my mouth <laughs> out, out of this little glass tube into a tiny plastic tube full of buffer. Okay. Um, and that stabilizes it and it keeps the DNA from degrading. Okay, nice. And then I take it back to the lab. This is months later. Okay. Um, and I extract the DNA. So the DNA is, you know, all those letters, the ACTGs, and I extract those big strands with the chromosomes and everything out of the blood. I take them out of the blood cells. You know, we do a little like lab wizardry, but essentially we just send it to a sequencer and this other facility will read those ACTGs for us. Um, and then they'll send them back. Okay. Yeah. And so you get all this information about kind of what the sequence of these genomes are um, and what do you do with that? Okay. That's the hard part. <laughs> so, so when we say that, you know, we, we get these sequences back from the sequencer, they're not like giving us the entire genome. You know, there's 100 or sorry, there's like 1.3 gigabases. So 1.3 billion of those ACTGs in a bird's genome. Yeah. They're not saying here's the 1.3 billion. Okay. Uh, this is what's interesting. Yeah. And this, you know, this is what's important about this. Um, what they do is similar to like, if they took a stack of newspapers and threw them on a stick of dynamite and then they swept up all the blown up fragments <laughs> into a garbage bag and they handed you the garbage bag and then you had to reconstruct the news from that from oh all those little god. scraps oh my god that's so funny um that's not my visual i somebody showed me that comic once um but it's exactly what it is you know you have all these tiny fragments and you need to line them all up um and when you're dealing with genomes that are you know billions of base pairs long. It's very, you know, mathematically complex and it's very computationally intensive. So I have, I have one bird whose genome file is over 500 gigabytes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So you can't do this on your MacBook Pro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> so, um, this is where it got complicated for me because, um, then to run the analyses, even just to line, line all those sequences up and, you know, assemble them into something that makes sense, you have to do it on these big, you know, remote servers, mm-hmm. which means that you have to, like, Mr. Robot, you know, do everything remotely on, you know, the command line through coding. And, you know, I went to school for uh, wildlife ecology. I learned how to measure trees 
diameter yeah. at breast height. I took soil yeah. samples. I did not learn how to grow. Yeah. And actually, this is so interesting because I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through biology programs, myself included, and you kind of come out at the other end. But I find it especially um especially relevant for people in ecology and any type of yes. ecology where you go through the program and then you end up in grad school and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, learn to code. Yeah. And you're like, just run cool, a model. That's fine. Just do a simulation. <laughs> just write an R package. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a, I, I should say I have a file on my computer because I was learning how to code as well. Um, kind of through my master's and and now I'm a bit better at it for for my PhD but um, I've got this file that is essentially hilarious R graphs that I've created because anybody who's <laughs> ever graphed on R knows that it creates these like you can code it to create these ridiculous yeah, graphs like yeah. I've got one that's just like a giant hexagon and I'm like this is this is not what I tried oh to make gosh. at all anyway, and I'm, I'm hoping to compile these and like put an appendix at the end of my thesis that's I love like that. all of these ridiculous graphs that I've made through R. I really want to see that yeah <laughs> yeah i'll show you afterwards yeah i have some um hideous maps <laughs> hideous <Yeah>. truly <laughs> inscrutable amazing. maps that i made <laughs> that's awesome that's incredible yeah i feel like we should um do like a public access like everybody can add their um horrible um, figures to it and yeah. everybody can just scroll through and laugh about it. Yeah. There's yeah. this one from molecular biology. That's like the, the Western blot hall of shame. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's like everything. Anybody's ever done a Western blot. So a Western blot is essentially this process where you transfer protein from a sample onto mm -hmm. a membrane and then you use antibodies to be able to stain for it and see if a protein is there and how much is there and that kind of thing. Um, but it's this, it's this pretty complex process that a lot can go wrong. And sometimes you just <laughs> ends up, end up with these like massive blotches of black across them and you have no idea what's going on. And so it's just like, it could happen. And sometimes I, like I used to call um, Western blots, like this, this act of wizardry where I'm like, how did somebody come up with this? First of all, and yeah. how, how does it happen like I have no idea um but yeah there's the western blot hell of shame and so maybe we need to do one for our graphs too. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the our figures hell of shame I yes, love it yeah. <laughs> I'm on board that's awesome <laughs> oh that's so great yeah um and my one question for you about this uh kind of genomic sequencing um is how much how much like manual work is involved can you get computer algorithms to do the majority of it and how much input do you have to have for it um yeah it's almost all entirely computer algorithms at okay. this point okay um and you know sometimes you have to manipulate the data you're like oh this file format needs this column here and this file format you know needs this to be after a colon and stuff. So sometimes you do have to like go in with like bash or something every time you see this, you know, this character in this column go through and, you know, do all that. But so far, at least for me, it's mostly using other people's packages and other people's um, software to run these huge complex algorithms. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what's the information you get? So you get the genome sequence and what do you mm. look for within it? Um, so with, with my work, what we're really interested in is sort of gene flow among species. Okay. So if we're talking about, you know, the speciation process, 
that really occurs because you have this population that is somehow subdivided. And then those two, you know, subdivisions or three or however many subdivisions you have get, um, they're isolated from each other. So any differences, any mutations, anything that's happening in, you know, group A doesn't happen in group B. And so over time they come, become more and more different from each other until eventually they're just so different they can't interbreed. Okay. Okay. Um, and so we're looking at species that are at an intermediate stage between being the same thing and being different things because that happens on, you know, a spectrum. And so we're really interested in, are these species exchanging genes at all? Is there any gene flow between these populations? Yeah. And if so, what is moving across? What genes might be globally advantageous? How does that affect um, their population structure? On the flip side, we're also looking at, you know, what's not moving, you know, what it's what seems like it's fine in a yellow-bellied sapsucker sucker, but can't operate within a red-breasted sapsucker. And so mm. those are the kinds of evolutionary forces um, that could be driving the isolation between them, making it so that they can't collapse back into one species. Okay, that's interesting. Do you normally see, like, do you have an expectation of the types of genes that normally move? Like, what would these genes usually do? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and I think we're still, this is, you know, very early. Okay. Genomic data are very early and being able to identify what genes are moving is something we're still working on. Um, but so I, something I think is a really interesting example out of our lab in the Irwin lab. Um, so there was... Um, Darren used to have a graduate student named Kira Delmore. She's now a professor at U of T, um, University of Texas. <laughs> I automatically thought Toronto. So uh, yeah, yeah. Qualifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, or sorry, she, no. Delete all of that. Uh, Kira yeah. Delmore. She's at Texas A&M University. Texas A&M. Okay, gotcha. Uh, she was studying these two groups of thrushes that we have here, which is a kind of bird in British Columbia, and so she was studying them on what's called a migratory divide. And so some of the birds will migrate, I think, to the east of the Rockies. And then another group of the birds go west of the Rockies. You don't want to migrate down the Rockies. That's like very harsh conditions. It's hard to do. You're probably not going to survive. Okay. So there's these two really evolutionarily constrained methods to get to Mexico or Central America, wherever they're overwintering. Um, and so what Kira did was she found out where those birds were going and she f- found, you know, statistically an association with a gene that is causing them to orient this direction or orient that direction. And so what she found was that, um, so the birds that ha- are heterozygous, so they have, you know, one of each, they take an intermediate route, which is not selected for. And so they have really low fitness, they die. And then they don't pass those genes on. So, so it's a way to keep the Eastern migrants from merging with the Western migrants. So it's interesting and actually pushing them apart. Physical divide. Yeah. 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 So even though these birds are breeding in the same spot, they're migrating in separate spot and separate directions. So, um, the, you know, the hybrids 
because if you have a hybrid, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any introduction from between the two species. You have uh, species A and species B. Okay. If you have a hybrid that's species AB, that's you know not going to affect either the populations. Mm-hmm. But if that hybrid then mates with either species individual from species A or species B, then it brings that other species genes into that gene pool. Okay, so it has to be that kind of secondary relationship that happens. Yeah, for for there to be any gene flow between the species, there has to be back crossing from the hybrids. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so if, um, sorry to be vague there, but like if you had a yellow-bellied sapsucker and a red-breasted sapsucker Mm -hmm. that hybridized, they formed this hybrid offspring. Mm -hmm. And then the hybrid offspring mated with a red-breasted sapsucker. Now you have yellow-bellied sapsucker genes in the red-breasted sapsucker population. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So if you can form hybrids, but they don't, um, but they aren't able to back cross. So I think a really familiar example of this would be um, horses and mules or Mm -hmm. horses and donkeys. So horses and donkeys totally separate species, Um, but they can interbreed and they form this hybrid, the mule, but the mule is sterile. So you're never going to have a mule breeding with a horse. So you're never going to get donkey genes in a horse. Yeah. Um, Because the mule's never going to drag those genes over. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. I've never thought about how you have to have that kind of second second part of it to bring the genes into the population. Yeah, but and it even operates more, you know, there's more nuance to it than that, right? So mm-hmm. the sterile donk or the sterile mule is that's a pretty um cut and dried example, but what if you had some that was just like a little less, right? It was it was just like like instead of instead of having no offspring, it would have one offspring instead of four. Mm-hmm. Is one offspring enough to, you know, introduce the genes statistically, you know, to f- cause these populations to be sharing a gene pool and to collapse into one population? Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of questions that we really study in our lab where, you know, to what degree um, does this isolation, how, how unfit do you have to be to be isolated okay. from one species to another. Yeah. And what kind of time scales does this follow? Because I imagine the birds mate once per season. Um, yeah. When we talk about birds, I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people study speciation with birds is because um, there's actually like a, lo- a wide variety of um, speeds at which this isolation is achieved. So there's species um, that are formed. So the two species I study, which are, you know, incipient species, some people who are really hardline biological species concept people wouldn't necessarily say much. So some species um, can be separated really quickly. Um, Mine, I'm looking at maybe a timescale of 300,000 years, but there's um, definitely species that are lower than that. But there's still species of birds that are tens of millions of years since they shared a common ancestor, and they can still hybridize. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, variation in isolation among bird species. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think in mammals, it's much lower than that. But I've also read about turtles, I think, that can still uh, form viable offspring. 
tens of billions of years after they split. So that's incredible. Yeah, that's well, amazing. Wild. Yeah, it's really, really is. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about why it's important to study speciation? Yeah. Um. So, I think people often have this idea that evolution is linear, right? We have that chart of ape-like creature, and then these bipedal. Maybe it's like Lucy, some Australopithecus, early hominid species. Um, and then there's like a caveman with a stick and then there's, you know, the businessman and then he's hunched over his computer. Right. But, but evolution is not linear. Um, it's branching, right? So if we didn't have speciation, if we didn't have this process of one species becoming multiple species, then, you know, we'd all still be primordial bacteria floating around in the ocean. Yeah. Which some days feels feels like a missed opportunity to me, but... (laughs) <laughs> I would say it feels like that's where I am. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Why am I paying taxes? Yeah. <laughs> Why am I trying to get my license at the DMV? Why am I standing here when I could be floating in the ocean? Photosynthesizing the sunlight or something. Yeah, and just making my food. I'm just sitting here making food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so speciation is, you know, the exp- explanation for the generation of all biodiversity on earth every species we see mm-hmm. we can attribute that to the speciation process so yeah. that's why it's important yeah. that's why it's interesting um do you have any focus on like climate change and speciation um i don't particularly have that um focus but it is um a topic right because mm-hmm. especially with we're looking at new species that have been you know geographically isolated coming back together in these hybrid zones okay um and that's happening a lot right now with mm-hmm. um with species moving their ranges in response to climatic changes and i actually have a collaborator of mine his name is Sean Billerman and he actually studied this in sapsuckers which was really cool because in this um northern california southern oregon region there's been a hybrid zone for a really long time like since the early 1900s they'd been collecting birds out of this zone okay and so he had you know dna um time samples from the 1900s and 1970s and now and he could show that this hybrid zone was moving um with the climate change induced changes so their habitat was moving and oh wow and the whole hybrid zone the whole ding dang thing was tracking that environmental change so oh my goodness um it definitely is a field i'm not super involved in that but it's yeah i mean i would argue that any any research in this is important for understanding yeah yeah and um you know, not not necessarily just climate change, but also just habitat use. So okay. how we use habitat also changes uh, where things are. And there's a there's been a big conversation with uh, two warblers in the U.S., the golden winged and the blue winged warblers, which I, I think this comes down to like land management. And um, one of them, I'm pretty sure it's the golden winged warbler is really rare and really endangered. And the land use change has brought a lot of blue winged warblers into their range. And so they're hybridizing. And so instead of mating with golden wing warblers they're mating with blue wing warblers oh i see okay. and so there's a conservation concern there um whether or not those two are actually different species or just two different like plumage morphs has also been debated so i'm not a, i'm not an expert on that mm-hmm. um look up the work of dave taves also an Irwin lab alum oh nice <laughs> <laughs> amazing for more information on that but it's a really cool and thought-provoking 
um, topic as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, that makes, makes me think that I've got um, a question about species and has the definition of species, because when I first learned about it, it was essentially uh, animals that could mate with each other and produce viable offspring. Is that still the case? Or because you're doing more genomic data, is there kind of a evolving definition of what a species would be evolving definition. I love it. Of, of what a species would be. Yeah. That's a really awesome question. And it's been a hot topic in biology for like a really long time now. Okay. Um yeah, so what a species is is what you just described is the biological species concept, which was developed by this um scientist Ernst Meyer back in the 1940s. And so he said, you know, exactly what you said, that um, to be separate species, they can't be able to reproduce. Um, but you can imagine that there is going to be exceptions to that. So one was um, asexual species. If you have organisms that don't interbreed with anyone, then what is every individual its own species? Um, and then there's also exceptions like... Um, so geographical isolation that, you know, potentially they could interbreed, but they don't. So mm -hmm. our um, Europeans introduced dandelions into North America. And now those dandelions in North America can't interbreed with dandelions in Europe. Are those different species? Mm. I, I would say it's not biologically relevant to say that they're different species, right? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then this the third major caveat, and that's the one that impacts me and my work the most, is this concept of hybridization. So if you have um, a donkey and a mule, or <laughs> I screw that up every time, if you have a donkey and a horse <laughs> and they make a mule that can't transmit genes from one species to another, sure, they're interbreeding, but they're not fundamentally, um, like they're still fundamentally separate, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that definition has since we've like parsed out all of these exceptions it's changed and there's a bunch of ways a bunch of species concepts um out there i actually saw an amazing meme um about this <laughs> on twitter it was if i don't know if you've seen the big lebowski yeah um and he has that quote that's just like your opinion man yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's the dude and he's like sitting in the bowling alley and he's like yeah well that's just like your species concept man <laughs> everyone's got a different opinion on this right um and some people are um really vocal about it so i i met this amazing person um his name is kevin omland and i think he's a professor somewhere in maryland um and so he's an ornithologist and his partner is an entomologist so sometimes you're your species concept is like very like taxon specific. Okay. Um, so she studies bugs and he studies birds and he said that they can't, um, they've just made like a blanket rule not to discuss this topic <laughs> in polite company because they get so heated about it. They get so heated about it. That's amazing. <laughs> and then during that same talk, he referred to the reign of terror of the biological species concept. So I think you can probably into it where he falls on the spectrum of the biological species concept. A lot of ornithologists just sort of go with what, you know, if, if there are two different populations and even if there's some hybridization, if when they're not together, they hold up if they're, if as separate species, if there's not gene flow between the species, okay. then they're good species. Um, and that has absolutely changed with, 
technology advances. So in Ernst Meyer's time, we didn't know what we we didn't even know what the structure of DNA was, right? So we mm-hmm. couldn't sequence the DNA and see, you know, who's got a gene here and who's got a gene there. They mm-hmm. it couldn't directly look at it. You know, they could infer stuff with flies, but you know, and even ten years ago when I started, we were doing Sanger sequencing, which is you know maybe a thousand, two thousand base pairs. So we could only look at a couple parts of genes. Mm-hmm. Whereas today I'm looking at the whole ding ding genome. That's amazing. You know, I've got billions of, ba- like I can, I have such great resolution to see how much of the genome is being transmitted, um, how robust these species are to the gene flow between them, um, which genes are involved in that. So yeah, it has completely changed the field with with our just explosion of genetic um, resources. That's amazing. That's yeah, so cool. It it's going to it's gonna be interesting to see how it changes. And it's whether such an exciting yeah. time to be here. The, like the projects that I started at the beginning of my PhD, they were like so cutting edge. They cost us a lot of money. And like now they're, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're, they're kind of par for the course. It's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, by the time I get them published, they, they won't be nearly as exciting as they <laughs> Still very exciting. Still very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You got to move fast in this field. Yeah, pick up your feet. Yeah. Oh, so cool. That's really interesting. Um, we're running out of time, so I do want to ask a little bit more about you. So, so you told me a bit about how you kind of ended up in the bird field. Were you always interested in animals in the first place? No. Um. So, I. I had not put enough thought into my future as a teenager. <laughs> I knew I liked biology. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, so my my department threw me into this, you know, first year seminar on that every week they would introduce us to a department or so like a, you know, within the biology department, you know, sub departments, you know, subfields, like the different kind of careers you could have with that. And mm-hmm. so um, one day these two guys showed up in plaid and jeans and like sweat rimmed hats. And they're like, we're going to go on a walk in the woods. <laughs> and they said, you could study animals. You could walk in the woods every day for labs. You don't have to take organic chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was totally sold. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that was a career, right? I didn't know it existed. So, yeah. um, that exposure really helped me. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I just sort of, you know, followed the things that felt comfortable and, you know, pointed the direction of whatever. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, uh, how do you like field work? How do you like actually doing the field work? Yeah. Um, I used to love, love, love field work when it was somebody else's project. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, I still do love field work, but it's a lot more pressure when it's your research and when if you don't get the data you need it might mean setting back your PhD for a year until the birds come back and you can catch some more. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's like, it's, it's early mornings, it's birds. um, But it's taken me to some of the most beautiful places, you know, like all over British Columbia. It's um, I've met some of the coolest naturalists and citizen scientists out there. Every time I, you know, and working with these sapsuckers, every time we find one, it just, it feels so darn special. Um, and it's a lot of, that's a lot of fun, you know, um, anytime. So before they leave, cause 
uh, I do release them after we take the blood sample, we release them. Um, and they love sugar water, right? That's why they're coming to the trees. So I have a little vial filled with sugar water and I just like dip their bill in it. And at first they're like, no, mm. but then they like start screaming at me and the sugar water gets in their mouth and they're like, oh man, this is amazing. Yeah. And then they're like slurping it up. It's so freaking cute. They like splash it everywhere. Um, it's adorable. I'll That's send you awesome. a video. Yes, please. <laughs> would like to see this yeah 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 when when is the season for them um so it's uh red-breasted sapsuckers live here all year round okay um but they're really territorial in sort of like late april to early july so that's typically when i go because that's when it's easiest to get them to come into your net um i have some like cool flapping decoys that I use and some screaming vocals. Okay, so you pretend you're another bird. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It's it's like a really dirty trick. You go and you, you know, I have this big boom box. Um, and I play sapsucker noises. And if there's a sapsucker territory, they'll come like screaming out at me, like, get out, get off my yard, you know? And so then I once I know they're there, I throw the net up. Mm -hmm. Um and I put up my decoy on a tree. And I start flapping and I put the noises back on and they try to attack it. So mm -hmm. um, then I catch them in the net. Okay. Um, yeah. How many birds would you say you catch a week during that season? <sighs> so my first season was really, really bad. I caught like 30 birds um, over, I think it was like 17 weeks okay. or something. Yeah. No, like 12 weeks. Sorry math um mm -hmm. so less than two birds a week i okay. i once went like nine days without a bird um cried in the back of my van yeah. <laughs> about yeah, it yeah. But, that would be but, hard um but that was before i had the decoys okay and when i just had one net and then the next year went out i went out and i said i'm catching more birds <laughs> even if it kills me yeah. yeah yeah and so i got they're called canopy nets and so i stacked three nets on top of each other and i had these flapping decoys and that did the trick oh, so nice. okay so i caught five birds in one day oh amazing okay. yeah so okay. after that it, w it went much faster probably at least you know um 10 birds a week i'd say oh nice you must yeah. have so much data like a wild amount i of do data. oh my yeah. god so much data <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah especially with the dna from all those uh yeah wow, that's incredible yeah i have to have like a special data allocation we're gonna finish with okay. um the rapid fire questions okay and essentially this is a question that i'm hoping you can answer in one sentence uh -oh. i i generally <laughs> Don't cut it off because I yeah. get interested in whatever yeah. you're saying. Um, but it's just uh, just a little bit to find out a little bit more about you in kind of a quick okay. period of time. Okay. Uh, so the first question is, what are you most proud of? Mm. I'm most proud of. Um, sorry, this is hard to do in one sentence. I feel like. So PhDs are super fun, but they're super grueling and super hard. And I've learned in my PhD that I, I can do a lot of things that 10 years ago I would have thought I was not capable of. So I'm, I'm proud of learning to push through these, you know, barriers that I set myself in my head for you know, what my capabilities are. That's awesome. Yeah. As you should be. You should be proud of it. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> In the pre-interview, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you've brought your pet along mm -hmm. for field work. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we can do this in one sentence, but in, in one sentence, <laughs> what is it like? It's a cat, right? I brought the cat and the dog. Oh my gosh. What is it like to bring those pets mm -hmm. along with your field work? Uh, the first two years was 
nothing because yeah. I, I had rented an apartment, so they were fine. I can't do this in one sentence. No, that's okay. okay. I just want to hear about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so the second year or the, my, my last year, my last field season, I knew I had to go to all these far-flung places. I had to do a lot of driving. I thought it doesn't make sense to go back every night to an apartment. I bought a camper van. Okay. Um, I thought it's fine. I'm going to sublet my apartment to a friend. They're going to pet sit for the summer. COVID hits. And my subletter falls through. Oh, no. So what do you do? You pack your <laughs> cat, your dog, your field assistant, hey, Afnan, and yourself into a Dodge Ram camper van, which whatever you're imagining right now, make it smaller. It was smaller than it was smaller than um and yeah just ripping around the woods in our camper van it did not go the way i expected the cat was amazing she loved it um is she an outdoor cat like did you no 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 she's a completely indoor cat um but it has so the camper van has this loft in the ceiling like a bed that you pull out and so i just like got a shower curtain and trapped her in the loft and it had like screened in windows. She loved it. That was her cat palace. Oh, amazing. The dog on the other hand went like full hunger strike. He was not happy. No. So I don't recommend that for anyone, but <laughs> sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we did get some nice like van life hashtags. So. Oh, nice. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All for the gram. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, finally, I'll ask a question. What would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the evolutionary process as a result of bad biology education. Um, and I think the one I hear the most often is that people say, you know, oh, evolution takes forever. You know, how can we even, you know, you can't even see it. So we just have to trust that it happens. Um, and but in, in fact, ev- like, so if, if you wanted to evolve from a velociraptor to a peacock, yeah, that's going to take millions and millions of years. But not all evolution, so the, the definition of evolution is change in genotype frequency over time. So you don't have to, you know, grow a third foot for that to count as evolution, right? Um, and, and that can happen really rapidly. Just look at, you know, all of the variants that are changing with COVID. Um, that's evolution. Um, something that's not evolution is evolution within an individual. So my generation probably gets a lot of this from Pokemon. You, you can't just evolve from one species to another species. Like one individual can't do that. It's a population process that takes, like it occurs on the gene pool level, not on an individual level. If you're looking at changing within an individual, that's development. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. That's awesome. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll, we'll finish it off here. So thank you okay, so much for great. joining us. Libby. Yeah. Thank you, Beth. This was fun. It was a lot of fun. This podcast was created with the help of our incredible team at the unscientific method. Our storytellers are Shada Swan and Sophia Ramirez. Audio editing done by Candace Ip, Kelly Liu, Richard Shang, and Jessica Peng. Marketing and promotions are done by Helen Ip. We also have the pleasure of working with advice to a scientist and SciCats to create science communication workshops for the young researchers that we have on the show. Thank you to Laura Stankowitz, Candace Ip, and Jen Ma for making these happen. And if you want to let us know how we're doing, request something that you want to hear about, 
or learn more about the workshops, hit us up on social media. Follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com because we'd really, really love to hear from you. Bye for now.